This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Parisa Noble. Uh, Parisa, welcome back from maternity leave. Thank you so much. I am excited to be back. It has been a long while. <laughs> it has. What, two months, I think, since, uh, or six weeks? I can't remember yep. how long you're gone. It seems like a longer, but. Yeah, it was about like six, seven weeks. So definitely some time. The little one's about to be two months old here and it's just flying by. I can't believe it. <laughs> time, yeah. time flies. Well, congratulations on being a mother for the second time. Thank it's exciting. you. Thank you. Yes, it's been good going from one to two. I was definitely nervous, but it is not as hard as I thought it would be. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. And now, now uh, your other, your son has a, has a playmate now, which will be good. That'll come in handy as they get older. Right. They can keep each other occupied. That's what I hear. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, well, great to have you back. It, it was, uh, I was telling Kyler, I think last week or the week before in, in our episodes that, uh, it was very difficult to not have a co-host or not have someone with you uh, during these podcasts. So it's good to good to have you back. Yeah, good. I'm happy to be back. I'm sure it's it's definitely easy to bounce around ideas when there's someone else there to talk it through. So definitely yeah. happy to be back. I missed the show. I missed you. I missed the audience. So um, I'm excited to jump back into it. Yeah, and w- me too. And while you were out or right as you were coming back, I suppose it was, there was uh, the Colonial Pipeline here in the United States. Um had a cybersecurity breach and obviously a lot of organizations that are going through digital transformations or just managing an IT function in general um, are concerned about cybersecurity and it's becoming an increasing concern for a lot of organizations. So maybe we could start there and talk a little bit about that hack and what it means to other other organizations throughout the world. Oh yeah. I mean, I just can't even believe that this happen. It's definitely, first we started with the solar winds hack and then now this happens and just these hacks on such a large scale, it puts it in a perspective what we're up against when it comes to cyber cyber threats and cybersecurity. Um, but I mean, I was looking into it and the colonial pipeline is huge. I mean, it, I read somewhere that it passes through 3 million barrels of fuel a day, 3 million a day. And it's, it goes from Houston to New York. So it, it gives almost half of the fuel supply to the East Coast. So for that to go offline is no small, uh, it's not a, it's a big deal. I guess I could just put it like that. It's a very big deal. And it, you know, I don't know if you looked into who is behind the cyber attack, but they call themselves dark side. Did you hear, did you read that? No, no, I didn't see this part of it. No. Yeah, they call themselves Dark Side, which I'm like, that's from Star Wars, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd assume that's where they got it. Yeah, so I'm just envisioning like Darth Vader sitting behind a, a computer screen, just trying to hack everybody. But 
I don't know, scary thought nonetheless. And it sounds like it was a ransomware attack. So I thought, you know, you're you're probably aware of the kind of different types of cyber attacks that can happen. And maybe we can d- dive into what is ransomware for those that might not know. What is it? Yeah, so it, it's typically what will happen is you'll have an outside party who takes over your um, your systems. And a lot of times it could be it could be a web domain. It could be your actual systems and, and they lock you out. And basically you can't get back in um, because I've taken complete control of those systems. And what they want is they want you to pay them money um, in exchange for releasing the system or the domain uh, back to you. And so it's, uh, you know, that's where the, the term the term comes from. Wow. Well, I know that um, they're back online now, and I'm curious, like, how much money did they pay this Dark Vader, Darth Vader guy or group? Who knows? But it's it's just crazy to think that that is just one of the many ways that these hackers can get into your systems and and kind of put a halt on your operations. And when it's operations that are to this scale, it's definitely frightening. Um, I know they closed it down. I also read they closed it down because they were worried that the ransomware would like spread to the system. So I didn't know that would happen. That is even able to happen. So do they like plant it somewhere and then it could just completely take over the whole system if you don't stop it? That's what I've heard or read. Um, I'm not familiar with that myself, um, but I think there is software that is used in the whole attempt to take over the systems. And I'm not sure the nuances of how it works. I'm not sure, you know, that many people do, which is part of the problem. Yeah. That um, is part of my problem. It makes yeah. me want to take a cybersecurity class, you know, or even just, you know, I don't know. Cybersecurity is probably a hot career to be in. Because yeah, I would think so. Just, you know, with COVID, I think, uh, you know, Daryl Crockett from our team, when we had her on talking about the solar winds breach uh, several weeks ago, um, I think it was episode one or two, she was on one of our first episodes of this podcast. She was talking about um, yeah, how common it's become and how these these hackers are escalating really since COVID. And part of that's because, you know, there's more cybersecurity exposure and risk because people are working remotely still. And uh, there's just more opportunity, you know, more unemployed people, uh, people with too much time on their hands, people, you know, that find ways to make money. And this is one way to make money, I suppose, is to go hack someone's system and take it over and demand money in exchange for it. So um, were these uh, particular, was this particular group based in the U.S. where this pipeline is or was this an outside uh country i think it was outside the country but i can't speak for sure um i i feel like i heard that on the news but i almost am speculating so i'm not sure 100 percent, but i know that whoever they are they know what they're doing and it's all of these hackers i mean anybody who's trying to do it they it's just gotten it's become such an intricate process that they can almost infiltrate what seems like any organization if they really wanted to um I don't know. So I, it makes, it sparks the question in my mind of, you know, obviously 2020 was a huge catalyst in how quickly we adapted to new technologies when everybody started working from home and started doing these virtual conferences, virtual meetings, and, you know, did the cybersecurity excel at the same rate as, you know, the cyber threat or as at the same rate as, us adapting to this new technological world, you know, it feels right. like it's not keeping up with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. And it's, 
you know, a technological gap, you know, as far as not keeping up with uh, tightening up your systems and the security behind it. But then there's also the, you know, the human and behavioral part of it too, you know, as far as just making sure your team is aware of these sorts of threats and, you know, phishing scams and things like that, things of that nature. So uh, it's both technological and, and human or change management related for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was speaking to somebody I, I know about what their company is doing in kind of the loo of all the cyber threats in the world. And one thing that their IT team has started doing is sending out, you know, practice phishing emails to their whole team so that their team can kind of be trained and just become more cognizant of, you know, what is a phishing email like? Like, how can you tell the difference? So, you know, take that one to the bank. If you if you are in IT, it's a good idea to start training the human side as well as tightening up your systems. Yeah, and not just educating them, but uh, also testing, you know, testing them and seeing, you know, where the exposures are so that if you're going to, if someone's going to have a lapse or make a mistake, hopefully it's done with your own team testing or, you know, faking a, a scam or a, a security breach. So um, that's what a, what a lot of organizations are doing. In fact, we're, that's something we're starting to do as an organization too, just to ensure that we, you know, as we grow, you have more people throughout the world, it becomes more of a risk uh, for, for us and really any organization that, that has, you know, our, our scale and, and breadth or, or even larger for sure. Right. right. And that kind of takes me to my next question is what would you, I mean, you're kind of in the IT space, uh, what would you say to leaders, both in the public and private sector, um, as we kind of enter this new world of crime that is all happening online? What would you say to them? Yeah, well, I'd say, you know, you want to make sure you, you have pretty clear uh, cybersecurity systems and processes in place, uh, especially if you're going through a transformation and you're, you know, moving all your data from one system to another. I mean, there's there's risk there as far as, you know, sensitive data, financial data, customer data, product data, all that stuff, um, you're sort of digging that up and moving it to new systems. That's always a risk. And um, if you're moving it to the cloud, you know, you want to make sure you understand, you know, who your hosting provider is and what those security protocols and processes are and make sure you're comfortable with that. And if you're still running, you know, say on-premise systems or systems that you're managing within your four walls and you have people outside the physical office that are accessing it, um, or even if they're within the office, you just want to make sure that you, you know, account for the fact that there's, there's risk in each of those scenarios and, and, uh, you know, just building that, that competency and that workflow into a transformation plan is, is super important. Yeah, that's good advice. And I know you just recently had a conversation with Wayne about operating models. Maybe it's time to start incorporating cybersecurity into the operating model that you're running off of. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that is absolutely true. And uh, that, that sort of segues into, you know, this show and this episode and what we're going to cover today. Um, we, we have, we started uh, while you were out on maternity leave, we, we started live streaming um, Q&A interviews um, on LinkedIn and YouTube, uh, Facebook and Twitter. And so if you go to, you know, my profile on, on LinkedIn or connect with me, follow me on LinkedIn um, and or uh, YouTube or Twitter or Facebook, you'll see this live stream every Friday at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. We, we've been live streaming these Q&As and we bring on a, a different guest every, every week. And last week we had uh, Stuart Robb on and we talked about digital transformation best practices in general, sort of you know, what are the best digital transformation strategies and tactics? And then we had Wayne Holtham from our Asia Pacific office in Brisbane, Australia, 
I did a live stream with him, a Q&A, talking about uh, operating models, um, which it, it, I used to think operating models were the same as business process improvement, but it's it's not. But if you, you're familiar with the term business process improvement or reengineering, it's somewhat similar to that. Um, and it's probably the thing you could, might be able to relate it to the most. So had a great conversation with him, really interesting. I mean, he's, he's a smart guy and his, his brain goes a million different directions. And so the interview was super, super interesting. We had really good engagement from the audience. We had uh, several hundred people watching it live and contributing questions as we were, as we were talking. So really good segment. We're actually going to share that here in today's episode. Um, we're going to take a quick break and we're, when we come back, we'll cut to that clip and show you that interview with Wayne, which is super interesting. So if you're going through a transformation, thinking about business processes and your future state operating model and how your organization and your operations need to look in the future, this is really a, a really helpful interview. So uh, we'll take a quick break and when we come back, we will have Wayne Holtham on the show. So you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Parisa Noble. We go live every Wednesday morning U.S. time on YouTube and your preferred platform of choice, uh, or your preferred podcast platform of choice, I should say. If you listen on uh, Google or uh, Spotify, Apple Music, Apple Podcast, any of those, um, you can find us there every Wednesday. So check us out uh, and subscribe if you haven't already. And please share this podcast with your colleagues and friends. We'd love to get the word out as we are still a relatively young and new podcast. So we'd love to get more uh, people to, to listen in on this content. So we're going to uh, cut over to an interview now, as I mentioned before the break, with Wayne Holtham. He is the vice president of our Asia-Pacific office. And not only does he lead up our Asia-Pacific presence and our team in that region, but he's a very smart guy, like a lot of our team uh, is. And he has a lot to talk about as it relates to operating models in this particular segment. And so we're going to talk uh, with Wayne uh, I start off the segment in the first 20 or 30 minutes, just asking him a bunch of questions on my own. And then suddenly the avalanche of questions started pouring in from, from the audience. So it's a really good conversation. I actually really enjoyed it. It's one of the best ones I think I've done in, in several months, I'd say, um, just in terms of the discussion and where it went. So this is going to be particularly important for those of you that are going through transformations and, and struggling with the, the question of how do we define our future state? You know, what do, what do we want to be when we grow up and how do we translate that into our transformation. A lot of companies struggle with that. A lot of organizations struggle. So uh, that was the purpose of the conversation. So I'm going to cut over to Wayne and uh, we will take the conversation from there. So Wayne, thanks for joining the show today. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So um, actually, while we're we're getting set up here, I'm actually going to um, 
make sure I'm live on all the, the screens here. So we'll uh, uh, maybe while we're getting started here, um, maybe just give us a little bit of background of your some of your uh, background and kind of how you came up in the world of digital and business transformation and ultimately what we'll talk about here in a minute, which is business uh, operating models and business process type stuff. But maybe just give us a quick overview in the meantime. Okay, Eric. Yeah, I've, I've been around, uh, I suppose, for the last 30, 40 years in functional as well as uh, so in the days before we had computers. Uh, and uh, and since then, got to the point probably about 15, 15 years ago into digital transformation when it really got into the point where, uh, you know, the basis of cloud was taking off. We had uh, ERP platforms becoming the norm for major organizations. So working in the delivery of those those. Uh, major platforms and, and digital transformation has probably taken off a lot more because where we had non-premise uh, type instance in the past, now we have uh, a lot more um, modules that we actually like to work together and that just makes everything a bit more complex. So so that's I've sort of grown into that space and uh, and from delivery as well as a functional role. So, uh, so you get to see both sides of what happens when it comes to uh, operating um, a platform. Great. Right, so you've been doing this a while, and you've seen a lot of different, uh, a lot, a lot of different situations and types of transformations through the years. I suspect. Yeah, yeah, and with a lot of different industries, you know, whether it be manufacturing, whether it be mining, whether it be utilities, whether it be retail, everybody has a different sort of need, and that's why uh, our topic today will be really good because it, uh, it sort of highlights that if you put some thinking in at the start, um, you can actually keep that secret sauce that uh, got your business to where it needs to be or where it started to. Uh, from to um, to actually uh, be an advantage for you. Yeah, great. Well, good. Well, before I dive into the questions here, I just want to welcome our audience too. We're, we're live streaming right now on Crowdcast where many of you are watching. I know we've got several people watching so far on LinkedIn as well as YouTube and Facebook. So we're streaming on a few different platforms here. And the whole idea of this weekly Friday or in your case, Wayne, or others in Asia Pacific, I guess it's Saturday already, but uh, this Friday slash Saturday uh, standing time that we have for these live streams is really to, to record our transformation ground control uh, primary interviews in a live setting. So we want to get more audience participation and um, you're actually getting sort of behind the scenes of the podcast production here because you get to be part of the show and then we'll kind of wrap this up and put it through production and polish it up and all that good stuff and, and uh, put it out here in a couple of weeks as, as one of our episodes of transformation ground control. So I appreciate the audience being here today. Um, encourage you to jump in anytime, uh, add, add a, a question in the chat. If you're on LinkedIn, feel free to uh, include a chat there or on YouTube or Crowdcast, uh, even Facebook. I'm watching all the platforms here. So as Wayne is answering my starting point questions, I'll keep an eye to see what questions you all might have. Um, so to start, Wayne, um, maybe just the topic today is, is uh, business operating model. Maybe just help us unpack what, what is that? What exactly is an operating model and how does it fit into a a digital transformation. Well, it's interesting. Operating model. There's there's a number of different uh, uh, levels of operating models. So if I'm a a, a, sort of a, a major corporate organisation, I'm looking at whether I'm decentralised, I'm centralised, and you know your your normal consulting firms will come in and give you some advice on you know how you should structure organisation, whether it be globally or whether it be you know within a particular region. But the operating model we're talking about today is about how we actually have an op how we operate our technology. So, so you know, we buy in a traditional ERP, we'll have the basics of ERP, but then we're actually looking for different modules, and so that helps us drive what our business 
operating model should look like and then how we can leverage the technology to make that work for us. And so that, that's, that's the, probably the, the different levels of, that we talk about with operating. And then obviously that leads into a number of different impacts to the business when it comes to how we operate. So are all our processes right? Are we, you know, uh, are we doing, are we doing things in a consistent way? You know, um, are there certain impacts that happen to us? Like we, we, you know, we might need investment to, uh, to do a lot of projects, but we don't actually plan for that investment. So let's put in some, um, some, uh, an operating model that supports that. So, uh, so these are the sort of things to consider. Okay. So if I, hear you if i hear you right it sounds like an operating model is sort of like business process management or business process improvement how, or how does it how does it or doesn't it relate to process management or process improvement how does it all tie together well it influences it and that's the, that's the key thing so it's sort of if you've got the overarching uh, i suppose platform of the operating model then the processes that come under that actually um um, is, is, is what drives you as such. So if I'm doing, uh, like I say, investment planning, then I want to be able to have a few processes that inform me where I should invest or how I should invest, what I should invest. And so that drives some of those processes of how do I get that information? So I need to be able to get, um, a, you know, a, a, it's almost like a circular process. So I'm going to invest here. How do I invest? How do I deliver? How do I know I've delivered that on time? And so, so that's the sort of operating um model that we talk about when we talk about that, that capital investment project type thing. Gotcha. Okay. And when we think about the operating model and, and business processes in general, how does it fit into an overall transformation? You talked about end-to-end -end processes and how technology can, can help you define that, that future state operating model, but how does it all tie together? Um, or, or how does it, as far as sequencing and timing and all that stuff, how do you integrate this into your uh, digital transformation? Well, the, the operating model is one of those things you should think about at the beginning, because what it will what it will do is actually say, well, what is the architecture we're actually going to have, the functional architecture of the module? So, so for the for our digital transformation, we're going to have a grouping of modules that actually uh, that we, that we'll buy or or we'll actually look to actually implement, and so that then will so those modules will will then need to be defined on how we're going to. Uh, have processes that support those modules or leverage those modules. And so the first stage is usually identify the, the operating model, then look at your architecture. So, so what's, what's your bill of materials, what's your uh, makeup of your platform going to look like? And then obviously the processes that actually drive and leverage that. And so that's where process improvement comes in because you know, often organizations work in the silo. So they'll work within their particular disciplines. What this is trying to drive is that they leverage off each other. So if I'm finance, I'm a supporter of getting um, better outcomes. So, so planning my investment, planning those sorts of things. Whereas in the past, finance was more of just a transactional. So it helps them become that, that uh, piece of the organization that manages efficiency across the organization, which is a, which is a big process uh, as such. Right. So we it sounds like uh, from what you're describing that this whole concept of operating model is sort of a centerpiece for any sort of transformation, whether it's a digital transformation or even a, just a general business transformation where, you know, it's sort of driven by your operating model, if you do it right, or if you do it the way that you're suggesting, and that sort of leads to other things, you know, you figure out the architecture, as you mentioned, what architecture is best going to support that operating model, what technology, um, what's how does that affect the organization, the change, the change management or the change impact, um, performance measures? It's, it's sort of touching all those things, isn't it? 
Oh, exactly right. And it's and it's interesting when you when you actually deliver one of these programs. And I'm I'm two thirds of the way through um, uh, working with an organisation to deliver a program. And you and I didn't come in at the start, so they didn't have an operating model. And so their selection was: we're going to get a whole heap of technology. We're going to make it like we had before. And now they've actually got this technology in, they're realizing the gap in what they've done is because the operating model doesn't support all of this other functionality. And so they're just, they're actually putting themselves backwards because they still have the problem of not being able to manage their capital investment. They still have the problem where people do things differently. So there's, there's, there's nothing that actually guides or over, uh, you know, uh, sits umbrellas the, uh, the, the digital technology that they've purchased. So they've just bought a whole heap of technology that'll fix it. And it, and it doesn't because it's, it doesn't bring it together. There's nothing holding the processes or the actual architects. They can't even get out of design. So it's a, it's a real, um, you can see the challenge of not having those sorts of steps done at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I know you and I have worked on projects together and independently of one another, even before working together uh, at, on the third stage team. And one of the things that I know we've seen, you know, on, on clients together and, I suspect you may have seen this in your past too, is that you, you get so enamored by technology oftentimes that the technology becomes the centerpiece instead of the operating model. And so that, you know, that subtle nuance sort of changes the focus. I mean, how, how, how would you just, how would you, uh, what would you say to someone who's saying, well, why would we worry about our operating model? We're just going to go find, you know, SAP or Oracle implement that. And then that'll sort of determine what our operating model is. How, how would you respond to that? objection or that thought well it's interesting i had the same question asked of me yesterday for my client it's it's one of those things where it's it's trying to help them understand where they're because they have challenges they have pain points and so the reason they're putting technology in usually is to overcome those challenges um and and it's misguided in a sense because the vendors sort of say well yeah technology will fix it all but but what uh, what is quite important to recognize is the reason those pain points are there is because it's more about process and how they operate Technology is just a component of that. And so when we start talking about how we would address and overcome some of those pain points, um, like lack of uh, lack of capital um, money, running out of operational uh, expenditure, running out of those sorts of things, you start to tie it back and say, well, you could actually improve what you do just by the way you operate. And uh, and the technology is only going to support that. It's not going to be the, the complete answer to that. And so... Um, so it's an interesting discussion because it's hard to get your head around because many people think operating model, well, I'm centralized, I'm decentralized. As many of the big consulting firms come in and believe that operating model is for you. It's, you know, that, that second level is where, how are we going to operate? Now we've grown, context has changed. Uh, there's disruptors that have happened in our world. Is our operating model still the same as what it, sh what it has been in the past? And that's why you need to consider those things up front. Uh, because your context has changed. And so technology is only going to either enhance that or cause you some more issues. Right. Yeah. That, that makes, makes total sense. So on the, uh, I, I guess on that, along those lines with the, uh, the, the, does the technology drive the business operating model or does the business, does the operating model drive the, the technology? Um, is that true in most cases that, that you see that is best practice? Would you consider that best practice to let, to sort of define your operating model first, or does it depend on the client or how, how would you determine the right approach there? Your operating model depends on the client and the organize the type of industry you're in and the type of organization you are. 
technology is really only it should only support it and influence uh, you know the the operating model should influence what technology is and how you use that technology so to try and put technology first to actually create your operating model and and it's it's interesting that many people talk about best of breed or you know the uh, leveraging technology best of breed well that just makes me the same as everybody else and so if I was an organization that uh, wanted to be uh, more competitive, uh, you know, a leader in my market, then, and I was best of breed, then I'm only as good as, as what technology is telling me to be. Whereas the operating model leverages how I can actually be the best I can be within my industry as such. You know, we can, we can do things in certain ways that give us, and I think the American uh, version of that is what we call secret source. It's, it's that competitive advantage that many people are looking to have in a really, really, um, you know, there's, there's, it's a competitive world we're in sort of thing. And so if we don't consider how we operate different than just having technology that is the same as everybody else's, then, then we really, we're not getting any advantage. It's like uh, when we play a sport, you know, everybody, every team within that, uh, that particular discipline actually plays a sport, but only a few are premiers or, or win the, win the, the Super Bowl at the end sort of thing. And so, why is that the case? Is they play the game better? So their operating model is actually more um, more refined than than everybody else because they play by the same rules. You know the rules are actually the you know no one plays different rules. It's just they learn how to play them better. And I suppose that's the best analogy I find with getting a very good operating model in place. Is look at the sporting team. You know there's there's not a lot of differences that they have apart from players and how you play the game. Uh, not necessarily. You know the the rules that rules is like the technology. That's the bit that's the, I suppose the the leveler for everyone. Yeah, that's a that's a great analogy and a, and a really good point that that ties it back to you know success and failure rates in the industry. I mean, so many of these transformations fail largely because they're people are doing things out of order. They don't have the right strategy. They don't have the right approach to deploy the technology. It's usually not because the technology doesn't work or the technology is broken. It's usually because we haven't managed this whole concept of, you know, what we want to be when we grow up and letting that dictate how we run our project versus I'm going to go buy SAP, Oracle, Microsoft Dynamics, whatever the product is, and I'm going to defer to that product and let that determine for me what, you know, what processes or best practices are most appropriate for me. And I think that that difference oftentimes can separate, you know, in your analogy, the winners versus the losers in transformation, success versus failure. Uh, yeah, exactly right, and 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 it's it's one of those things when you see organisations that are really understanding of of uh, an operating model or their their place in their industry, you see the success they have and the way they actually approach things. When you look at organisations that think, ah, I'll get this the silver bullet or the magic pill or whatever, which is technology, and and they get lost in it because what vendors sell people isn't actually. The, the complete picture because technology is only a component. It's a feeder. If you don't have processes, if you don't have understanding of how you actually are going to use those processes, if you don't have architecture that actually supports that, then you've really just got technology. That's it, which is, which, you know, is, uh, it can be limiting in, in the way you use it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit a, a really important point that I think is worth maybe highlighting a little bit, which is that, if, if you're if you're a customer, if you're a CIO or CFO or any sort of part of any organization that's about to go through a digital transformation and you go talk to software vendors, generally they're going to tell you if, if you were to present this concept to them like, hey, we're going to define our operating model first, then we're going to bring in the technology 
to support that. What I've found, and I'm curious to see if you agree with this, is most of the time vendors will say, no, 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 don't worry about the operating model. Our, our software has best practices, it's pre-configured for your industry, and that's just a waste of time to do that operating model stuff or that future state definition. Let our software do that for you. I mean, how do you, you know, that it sounds good. I mean, it sounds like that's what I would love to hear or, if it, or I'd love that to be true because I would make life so much easier for everyone if the technology could just sort of figure it out for us. But I found that to not be the case. What, what's your experience been? Oh, exactly right. The vendors come in and, and I think I think it's just a, a, a ploy to say, well, if I can make if make you feel at ease that what you're putting in is going to solve all of those problems, then then you won't go and look anywhere else or you won't actually maybe look at a different software because you realize that the, the software we're offering may not deliver everything that you're looking for. And I think they get a bit bit scared on that. And so they're very good at convincing people that don't worry, we've got all of the answers you need. And we've actually got in our particular offering, we actually have a version that is suits your industry and it's best of breed. And that, and that whole vision of best of breed is is uh, is often overstated because what is best of breed? As I said, you know, is that just the leveler that everybody wants to work off? Um, I, I've, I've worked in probably thousands of businesses and I've never seen every business work the same way. So right. how could best of breed work for a competitive business? So uh, maybe a, maybe a government instrumentation, you know, um, sort of thing where they're actually working, you know, following government rules or whatever, but even they work differently across different regions, across different parts of the world globally. So, so how can you have one technology platform say, I'm best of breed and all of your problems will be solved. It's, it's, it's a bit hard to, you know, when you step back, it's, it's only when you step back, you can see that. But many times when you're in the, the spotlight of the vendor, you know, offering you and really sort of putting up some benchmarks and you start looking at, um, you know, the, the, the magic quadrants and those sort of things. And they sort of lead you to believe that everybody's heading towards this best of breed when really that's, that's just not really the case. Uh, it just means that people are actually putting in certain platforms, but they're still configuring and they still need to configure them in a certain way that actually satisfies their, their, uh, their business as such. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great points. And, uh, you know, I always try to look at, I always try to empathize with the situation and understand the dynamics of play in any sort of situation like that. And, you know, I always look at, you know, what if I were a software vendor sales rep, what would I, what would I be telling people or what, you know, why would a sales rep say those sorts of things? And you have to look at what their incentives are. Their incentive is to sell you on their software as quickly as possible. And if you start focusing on operating model and stuff that sort of gives you a blueprint for how to deploy technology, or if it creates any sort of doubt that that technology is going to be the right answer for you, Obviously, I'm going to try to override that to try to sell you. Like, why don't you just sign the contract now? Let's just get our software in there, and then I'll make my commission, and you can go implement it. Well, I'll be happy, right? I mean, it's it's sort of the, the human dynamic or human behavior at play, and so you just have to recognize it for what it is, and say, well, let's let's look at what's best for our business. And I think your point is really well taken too. The point about, um, you know, if every system, if if there were systems out there that had best of breed or best practices, whatever you want to call it then what, what advantage would any organization have over another organization? So that, you know, that's one thing. And then the other thing is it, it seems like you alluded to this a little bit in, in your last response, but it seems like you have, you have sort of two subsets of uh, business processes. You have your, call it your commodity processes, like your accounts payable and, um, you know, GL, your period end close processes, things that they're not the same across organizations, but you could probably live with whatever technology can or can't do, or, you know, and I'm generalizing here, but in general, those processes are more commoditized and a little bit more vanilla. 
But when you look at things that are more specific to your customers or your product, or if you're a, you know, engineer to order complex product, there's probably processes that are unique to you that give you some sort of edge or that could give you some sort of edge that you want to define up front and then figure out how the technology fits. So have you seen that work before where you sort of bifurcate or separate into two buckets, the vanilla processes that maybe you don't spend as much time defining the operating model. And then over here with these competitive advantage or secret sauce processes, you, you go deeper into those areas. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a good point you raised there because it's I've, I've, probably as you talk through that, it's, it's like I've generalized, but there are, there are best of breed in the sense of everybody does a creates an invoice. Everybody creates a, um, you know, a, a accounts payable process. So those are those sort of things you can say, well, they are standardized processes and, you know, the more streamlined they are and the more uh, simple they are, then that's what you're trying to get because obviously that adds to uh, additional transaction costs, which is internal cost within the business. And, but, but the other processes you talk about, those ones that are competitive advantage ones, they're the ones that you want to, you want to be able to have control of, you, you know, so, so there is, it is almost two, two different, um, uh, focuses on it. So one is the, the commodity type ones, your accounts payable, your finance, your traditional type things that, you know, there is a lot of consistency and a lot of standardization in that, which, which I think is helpful that organizations consider that because many organizations complicate that part of it. And, and so you can see where processes are very important in the sense that if I streamline that, I actually uh, bring more, um, more time available back in my organization to do the things I need to do for the, the people who are doing those roles instead of fighting fires. But the other part is looking at how do I actually improve processes that actually really add value to my business. And that's, and I suppose that's that secret source piece. So, so it's about defining, understanding that both, both are important and one, and both actually add value to your business. So taking complexity out is important, uh, but the other piece is leveraging uh, how you go about what you do and how you do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we're gonna continue the conversation with Wayne talking about operating models. So stay tuned, we'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, feeling good, like I should. When in if you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here chatting with Wayne Holtham. And we're going to cut back to the interview here. We're talking about operating models within transformation. So uh, take it away, Wayne. So I, I want to come back to that thread here in a minute. But in the meantime, we've gotten a few questions and comments that um, from the audience here. Um, I'm checking, uh, looks like LinkedIn and Crowdcast here. We have a, a few comments. So I'll start with Crowdcast here. Um, and I think you can see this probably on, on your screen, uh, Wayne. But Saif, uh, Saif or Saif uh, Chowdhury uh, made an observation as per my experience, clients like to seek the vendor that provides pre-configured processes that can be then used as a starting point for workshops to tweak. 
and that's an interesting point or an interesting uh, question, which is, or an interesting topic to maybe unpack a little bit. What about that concept of, hey, okay, fine, you want to, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Client, you want to implement or you want to define your operating model. Let's have us come in, the software vendor system integrator, we'll come in and we'll guide those workshops based on best practice. And then you could tweak those best practices to, to fit your operating model, your desired future state. Is that a, how does, how does that work? Is that a, is that a good approach? Is it, a, is it a watered down approach of what you're suggesting or, or what do you think? Well, I, I usually find it's a, it ends up being a, a slanted towards technology approach because what they're trying to lead you to do is say, well, you know, uh, and, and they're very well versed in it. So if they start talking about certain processes, they say, ah, you'll need this extra piece of technology to be able to make that happen. And so, so it ends up being an additional aspect to the sales process instead of saying, uh, what do I really need? And many times you find that when, when you've had a vendor drive that, you end up with a lot of shelfware later because what they actually sold you really doesn't work to actually satisfy. When you get down into the detail, you go, ah, that doesn't work for us. Bad luck. I've already bought that. So that will sit there. And so um, that, that's one of the challenges when you have the vendor driving that because there's no objectivity. And when you look at what they do is they don't know your business. They have never worked in your industry. And so how would they actually have the specialist um, depth of how it operates um, to be able to make the technology work? So, so they really only come in for that, that side is the technology side. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And it, it seems especially true for call it the, the bigger ERP system. So like the SAP S4 HANAs of the world, the Oracle ERP cloud, Microsoft dynamics, 365, those big uh, ERP systems generally you, you're more likely to run into issues or situations where the technology is just doesn't do what you need it or want it to do. But in those workshops, to your point, they'll say, okay, well, let's figure out a workaround or here's an alternative and that's okay. But oftentimes it gets really watered down and it's just a limitation of the technology or you're sort of boxing yourself in, you're sort of compromising what you really want and need out of your operating model when you, when you take that approach. And maybe there's parts, like if you're doing an S4 HANA implementation, maybe there's parts of your organization that shouldn't be using S4 HANA. That's not a terrible thing to admit and say, well, maybe we shouldn't use S4 HANA for CRM. Maybe we should go use Salesforce. Maybe Salesforce is a better fit. So to your point, yeah, you don't want to get sucked into saying, okay, well, we'll just buy the whole product for across the enterprise without really knowing what our future state operating model is. Cause you're, you're probably going to end up with some parts of the business that just don't, don't function well. Yeah. And, and what they tend to do is actually blindside you to actually what is what other options are there. So like you say, you know, Salesforce or, or something else might actually uh, be a better fit, but you will never get that if you've actually invited the vendor in to actually do those early workshops, because as far as they're concerned, there is nothing else in, in the world apart from their particular piece of um, piece of software. And so um, it's not until later that you actually realize, oh, geez, if only I'd done this, but you're with a you're with an ERP for how many years? You know, on average, fifteen years is um, the time you're with an ERP platform. So, so it's not something you're going to change straight away. You're just stuck with it, and that's that's a real problem because, you know, if you're putting something in, you don't want to be something that holds you back after you've deployed. You want to be able to really get that value back out of that huge spend that you've just uh, gone through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Get that that ROI that you're you're looking for. Um, so a couple other comments, actually, here's a couple of things from LinkedIn here. Um, there's uh, one person, Jeff Weber says, uh, operating model is the horse and technology is the cart, which I, that's a maybe even simpler analogy than the sports analogy you used earlier. And I, I like that. It's, uh, yeah, you know, which, which comes first, the horse or the cart. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, a 
question here from Rajendra Singh Negi. Negi, I may have butchered your last name or all of, all of your name. I apologize for that. Um, his question is, uh, get data about organization and, and processes. Tech could help, which leads to the operating model, um, get technology to help. Um, I'm not 100% sure what, what he's asking here, but it sounds like tech he's asking or maybe making a comment that technology supports the operating model um, and it helps the business model versus being driven by technology uh, or, or driving the operating model. It sounds like uh, is what he might be alluding to there. Um, I think I think one of the things there with technology uh, determining your operating model, there are some tools out there that actually will help you actually understand um, how you operate as such. And so there is some technology that will help guide you with that. Um, but it's not what your ERP um, uh, platform or CRM or HCM uh, technology is. It's it's you finding the gaps within it to actually guide how you should operate. So it, it is an, in, uh, an informer as such if you use the technology in that way. But we're talking different technologies. And so um, so one is a understanding and insight and allows you to be able to monitor that you are maintaining your operating model and the procedures that sit underneath that process sit underneath that. Um, so that technology is there in place. And if, I think it's probably becoming more mainstream as people look at that um, to actually guide them on the bigger piece of their uh, journey is the, is the larger implementation of an ERP, a CRM, a, a whatever that might end up being. So, um, so yes, there is some technology that can help you understand how you are operating so to give you a bit of an insight. So it's just not a guess as such. Yeah. And actually, I want to come back to that point. I have an article I was going to re refer to in a, in a question I'm going to ask you here in a second. Um, so hold, hold that thought because <laughs> that's, a, that's a really interesting one. Um, here's a comment here on Crowdcast or, or a question from uh, Sam Graham. And I had a chance to read this question uh, while you were responding to the last one. I really like this question and it's something that has been a theme with other interviews I've conducted recently in our podcast for uh, or with uh, past clients and current clients. But the comment is, uh, or the question slash comment is, when I've worked with Japanese companies, and by the way, this is, if I didn't mention, this is from Sam Graham. Uh, when I've worked with Japanese companies, I've noticed that when they launch into a project, they spend a lot of time thinking about what they are going to do and then not much time doing it. In the West, companies spend as little time as possible planning and then much more time actually doing. That suggests that they believe that the silver bullet exists and that they can solve all their problems by buying into best practice. Should software vendors define best practice is the question. And he might have other responses to the rest of his comments as well. <laughs> well, well, I, I think it actually sums it up well in the sense that if you put the planning in at the beginning and you have the understanding of what you actually want, when the questions are asked by the, the uh, solution integrator or the vendor, what what do you want from us sort of thing you actually are very very clear on that whereas what happens normally is there's this this process in the west where you know we do heaps of workshops we identify all of the pain points we have which is the past as such but then we go oh well technology will fix that but we don't actually put the link together on how it's going to fix it or what it's going to mean and so whereas i think the japanese put a lot more of that planning in at the start and say well we need to get down into the detail and then when we roll it out, there's a much better chance it's a far quicker, it's less disruption because we've got a, on that journey, we've actually got a lot of people understanding what we're doing. Whereas from the Western side, it's about we do all of these other workshops and then it's not until people actually get the system and go, ah, oh, that's not really what we wanted sort of thing. And so because they, they weren't brought along that journey. And I think that's a, um, a very good point you raised there about 
early planning, understanding what you want, knowing your requirements and getting the solution integrator and the vendors to deliver that to you, not ask them what it needs to be because they'll only deliver you what they think you need, which, you know, there's a gap. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, just to build on your point and, and Sam's point, uh, I recently spoke with and interviewed on this podcast, actually, a, a, a client who's the CFO at a client in our year out of our European office is where we uh, were working with this client. And he had commented uh, on the fact that they were part of a they were part of a carve out. So his his organization was spun off from a parent company and they had I think it was 12 months to stand up a new ERP system because they had to get off the old one within 12 months to and be self-sufficient. So they were under a pretty significant time crunch. And so I was asking him, you know, how did you how did you meet that time frame? Because that's pretty aggressive and you're sort of under the gun. Most organizations aren't quite under that much pressure. They might be under some more other pressure. So I asked him, you know, what what was it was the key to getting it done in that quickly? And he said, spending time planning. It was all it was all about the planning we did up front. And then I said, well, how long of those 12 months did you spend planning versus actual execution of the transformation? And he said he wasn't exactly sure, but he said it was about 60%. So I said, so over six months. He said, yeah, it was, it was definitely over six months of the 12 months that we had to implement, we spent planning. And I think, you know, to Sam's point, one of the uh, one of the big challenges or problems you have, if you if you hear 12 months, you think, oh, we better start doing stuff. Let's get a vendor in here. Let's just start doing workshops. Let's start configuring, you know, designing and configuring, but that just leads you, it may feel like you're going faster, but you're just creating a bunch of problems that are going to add to your time frame later on. Oh, that's right. And, and when you actually uh, ask the vendor, they will give you a response and then you get the response back. you go, oh, I'm not sure what that actually means. And so, so then, then you spend time trying to work out what it actually means. And so that time just keeps slipping and slipping away. Whereas if you, if you're really clear on what you've, what you've done and what you're deciding up front, then the responses back to the vendor from the vendor or the solution integrator are very clear. And so all of a sudden you go, yep, I can act on that. I can make a decision. I don't need to, you know, clarification becomes less. And so the planning ends up leading you along the journey faster. And like you say, you know, you can spend a lot of time thinking you're doing something because you're asking questions, but really if you're not getting the answers and you're just constantly in that circle of trying to get understanding, then you're just wasting time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, one question here, I'm trying to think of what order to go in here just to keep a flow, but one, one question we had here that I think you alluded to a little bit early in the conversation, but maybe it's worth uh, rehashing, especially for people that are joining mid conversation here. But, uh, Shalita Amarin, uh, asked the question on LinkedIn, uh, what is included in the operating model? So when you talk about, when you define operating model, just what, what is included within that? Uh, in, that's a, a good question. So in, in an operating model, you need to be able to have what the governance is of the organization, what the, what the uh, I suppose, the competitive driver of the organization is, how you're actually going to measure performance should be part of your operating model, what drives performance, and, and obviously then the processes that are going to lead you to deliver that performance. So, so there's, there's those areas that you consider when you're developing that operating model. Gotcha. Okay. And then, uh, uh, actually, we had a first question come in on uh, YouTube here, and that question is from Romeo from London. He asks, what is your opinion on senior management interference in dictating project budgets and deadline without a proper understanding of project processes? Maybe I'll just add to that. Maybe a sort of a sub question there is, you know, how do you, how do you leverage the operating model to help you define what that, uh, 
you know, what that time duration and cost might be. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because when you actually start looking at the operating model, you start to realize the impact to the business that this transformation is going to be. Many times you have executives feel as if they've got a number in mind and, and it's really difficult because you have um, software vendors come in and they say, we'll give you a benchmark price on what it would actually cost to implement this, uh, this software. And what you, what you find is many times that price is to be able to sort of, it's the test the water price. Is that how much money you actually have? but they don't really want to make it so that it really seems overwhelming. And so for them, they actually say, well, this, we know that this price will probably get us across the line. And so that's meant it in the executive mind, which puts pressure on the project then because not everything's considered. They don't consider the level of change that's involved. They don't consider the amount of, of disruption to the organization. They don't consider all of those other sort of things, which become a pressure on a project later on if it hasn't been considered. And so, you know, if and and sometimes if you're just tweaking your operating model, the change to your business isn't as much. So you don't need to factor in that. But vendors, vendor is not going to know that. And so uh, so they usually go with what's a price that I think I can actually get this across the line. It's the sales process. You know, when I'm when I'm buying a car, I don't tell someone the price, the recommended price. I try and get out of them how much they want to spend. And then can we fit in there? And that's that's usually how it works. Right. Right. And then there's a actually a follow-up question from Romeo from London, and we'll just kind of keep going with this thread since it's re relevant to what you just said. So his follow-up question is, do you think that senior management should be trained in project management processes? So it's sort of related to that. You know, I think it's about expectation setting and educating senior management is, is what his question is related to there. I think that, uh, you know, that the senior management is there for a particular, you know, if we, if we train them to be project managers, then I think that'd be even worse of a problem. Um, I think the thing is they need to be able to understand the objectivity. Uh, it's about educating them and asking them the right questions so that the decisions they're making end up working, um, working with delivering a platform, not delivering what a vendor has sold them as such. And I think that's the disconnect. You know, uh, process management practices should be very clear. And, and you know, if, if we follow them appropriately and properly, we end up where we get a good outcome. I think the challenge we have is that if people don't understand what the project is, when those big decisions are made, you find that they're actually contradicting or holding you back when you're actually trying to implement a project. And that's where the challenge in project management comes. You can't get decisions when you need them. You know, um, you're constantly then asking for position papers, which is losing time. And for a project manager, if I've got a set timeline, I don't want delays. And so, so they, these are some of these things that hold up a project because the senior executive really isn't understanding of, of what, what they're actually doing as such. They're not being presented with information to make decisions as they need to make them. And, uh, and so there's, there is an education piece for senior executives to understand what it takes to deliver one of these programs. I think we run a boot camp uh, to be able to onboard executives for that very reason. So they really understand these questions are going to be posed to you. And so are you ready to be able to answer those? Because when they come, they're going to come and you need to answer, move on, answer, move on. And that keeps the project rolling. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So a, a commenting question here from, uh, Kiran Patel um, on Crowdcast, he says, uh, it seems the Japanese way has advantages in planning ahead. What is the typical time it takes to plan business processes before engaging a vendor? <laughs> it's, it's interesting. If, if, you talk, if, you've, if you've been involved with uh, process mapping over the times, 
Um, there is times when they can take many, many months and many years and organizations I've walked into, uh, you, you ask the question, they say, yeah, we've mapped our processes and we understand them completely and we've got five different versions of them over the time. So, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the fact of not really mapping process. We, we try and predict what as is, is. And uh, one of the, probably the greatest advances in technology that's happened lately is the fact that we, we can actually now start to see what is. It's, it's a big difference in the sense that, you know, uh, many times we'll sit in a workshop where people will put a lot of post-it notes on the wall and go, we do this process. But if you were to talk to someone actually down on the shop floor, they would go, well, we don't actually do that process because it doesn't work. So we have a workaround about that. And that's not evident. And so, so, so it's about now leveraging what do people actually do? And there's some tools that allow you to be able to do that quickly as against the old way of being doing it where we're actually putting, you know, we're asking people because people will only tell you what they want to hear and are we asking the right people what's actually happening? So middle managers are the ones who are probably least informed about what's actually happening in organization when it comes to some of those, those basic processes. Right. Yeah. And then a follow-up question or part two of, of uh, Karan's question here is uh, what high level step is recommended based on experience? If it was a Microsoft Dynamics implementation, for example, uh, for I think he's asking about sort of building on that previous question about the plan, the uh, planning, the business processes or the operating model prior to engaging a vendor. What is that? Um, you know, what are those high level steps that someone should take to get to that point where you're actually leveraging or engaging with the with the uh, senior or with the uh, software vendor? Uh, I think I think if you get your operating model right, then I, then I look at functional architecture. So so what does that operating model do? What modules am I going to need to be able to do that? If I've if I'm in an industry where and lots of times now we're we're expecting um, more parts of the organisation to interact with the system, and so so we have mobility devices now. We have those sorts of things. Whereas in the past we came in with a piece of paper or some uh, information and someone typed it into the system and that, that's how we, we operated. We now have many more people getting information back into our system, whether it be uh, through through mobility, whether it be through portals, customer portals, all those sorts of things. And so we need to then understand, well, what software are we going to need to actually deliver that for us? And how are we gonna get consistency of how that is actually, um, uh, you know, the, the, we capture the data. So we wanna be able to make sure that information we get is consistent and actually, doesn't cause us more problems. And so, um, so, so though the arch uh, functional architecture is probably the next piece to, to deliver and then by then you should be able to go to the, to the vendor and start to get an idea of what they have available and how they could actually satisfy those scenarios that you're actually looking to satisfy. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, I, I'm going to uh, open a can of worms here uh, to warn you here, or I'm not going to, I, I, don't shoot the messenger, Wayne. I'm just asking the question that the audience is asking here, but I, I think this is a good a good topic here um, or a good thread. So this is from uh, um, Rashid on YouTube is asking a question here. He's basically asking the uh, question about the, the planning that we talked about, spending 60% in the example I, I gave about spending all this time up front with planning. And he says, but most customers want Agile in 15-day releases. What do you think about clients who want Agile and Scrum implementations and sprint releases? So how does this all, How? and this is a great topic. I love this question because it, it is sort of a uh, a balancing act or, or a challenge that, that uh, a tightrope you have to balance out in these implementations. 
what, what about agile and scrum and that whole sprint mentality? How does that fit into this whole operating model concept? It, that, that ends up being in the delivery uh, approach and how you select and, and deliver your platform. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose, I hope I don't want to upset anybody, but, but Agile, if you look at what Agile is, Agile was set up to actually develop software. And so, the, so you, you end up with a very clear objective of what you're looking to do for a, for a defined piece of, of development as such. Whereas when we apply that to a, a very complex digital transformation, there are many, many pieces that Agile struggle to do because if we try to roll out things um, quickly, what we do is, is we end up doing lots of pieces but we end up with what I call an air gap. So the air gap between them. So we have lots of pieces that don't actually fit together because they haven't, they don't follow that flow of, we need to get to this point, but we've got so many extra complexity feeds, things feeding it, that we miss it, miss things along the way. And so, uh, and so that's where Agile really struggles in the complex. You know, there's a lot of people who say, you know, the scrums uh, work really well and there's a whole lot of technology out there that's meant to do it. I'm just been involved in a in a, a massive project, and it's gone down the agile route. And I think it probably adds an extra thirty percent uh, of cost onto your organisation because by the time you get to the end where you're starting to go, I need to close design. I need to make sure my processes are in place. My, you know, um, I need to understand what uh, what changes I've made. All of a sudden, you get a lot of those ah gotcha moments. We didn't consider that. We forgot that. We missed that. And that are sort of things that extend timelines and. And, um, and not to say that they may have just delivered Agile or managed the Agile process poorly, that could be the case, but, but I still see that gap happens when people apply Agile um, in its rawest form. I think it needs to be a bit of a hybrid. We've got a waterfall approach where things do cascade and it probably keeps us online in some ways, but the Agile piece is parcels of work we could do to actually, you know, um, satisfy the requirements. So, so it really does need to be not just a straight agile for the sake of we just agile. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's well put that, you know, you could, you can have that hybrid approach. You can, you can spend that time up front defining your operating model and have a very clear blueprint vision for how you're going to deploy technology and deploy the changes through the organization. But then you could go to the more the sprint mentality in terms of how you execute. But when you start off with that sprint mentality, I find that oftentimes, you know, yes, we're sprinting, but we're going in the total wrong direction here. You know, we should be going <laughs> this other way. It's so we're sprinting the wrong way. So good news, we're going fast. Bad news, we're going the wrong direction. So I think that dynamic longer term will cost you more than the the intent of uh, sprint or the intent of uh, agile is meant to meant to be. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue and wrap up this conversation with Wayne. Uh, we'll take more audience questions. We have a lot more audience questions. We're going to get to as it relates to operating models and we actually talk about a lot of other stuff in, in that context too so we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back on transformation ground control If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Back to Transformation Ground Control. We're going to finish up the interview with Wayne and talk more about operating models and take more questions from the audience. So we'll cut back to the interview right here. So another, we're getting a bunch of questions here on LinkedIn actually, uh, so I'll pull a couple here. Um, one of the, uh, it's more of a comment, I believe, and see if you have a response to this, Wayne, but um, this is from Evan uh, Bombecki on LinkedIn. And he says, Romeo's question seems directly related to one of the approaches to mitigating IT implementation risk, according to APICS, performing due diligence on proposals by interviewing previous purchasers and using third-party evaluators. Um, and I forgot, so Romeo was the one that was asking the questions about, uh, I forgot what his, which ones he was asking. So he's referring to Romeo's question. I apologize, I don't remember which one was Romeo's. But uh, what are your thoughts here on, on mitigating implementation risk by performing due diligence on proposals, by interviewing previous purchasers or previous customers and using third-party evaluators? I think that's a, that's a great option because how do you actually get that independence? How do you actually get what is real? And uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I recently did a survey of a number of uh, organizations that have implemented uh, Esquahana uh, over, the, over the last probably two to three years. And when you actually, when you actually uh, have been through the process where the vendors are trying to sell you um, Esquahana and they talk about its level, its maturity, it's all those sort of things. And then you talk to the people who've actually implemented and the gaps that were involved in, in that. I think it's a really helpful process to actually have that ability to be able to have that insight when you go in because your discussion with the vendor becomes a bit of a different discussion. Um, you know, it's not, it's how we're going to work to overcome these challenges. Not to say you're not going to buy it, but how are we going to overcome these challenges that we recognize are there as against, no, they were never there until you actually have bought it. And then they're all the, then they're there sort of thing. So, and that independent piece is ask those questions that most organize. It's, it's, it's interesting because organizations get caught in the sales thing of, well, we don't really ask them that because that might make us seem, you know, uh, like we don't know what we're doing or those sort of things. Whereas an independent, um, truly independent organization will actually ask those questions that, makes the vendor squirm because that's what they should be doing. They should be actually being honest and genuine and being able to say, well, we would deal with it this way and here's how we would do that. Whereas an organization either doesn't know how to ask that question or doesn't feel comfortable in asking that question. So it's really a good piece, a good good uh, thing, um, a practice to employ someone who can be the, the that objective person in the middle that, that, that isn't afraid to ask those questions, has experience on what, what you need to do so that you actually get the best outcome. Right, right. Good, good. Um, it's funny because some of the people that are were on Crowdcast now are on LinkedIn, so I'm getting confused because they're saying, oh, I was the one over on Crowdcast that asked you this. Now I'm going to ask you this over on a different platform. So I apologize if I'm, if I'm missing anyone here. Um, so what about uh, this? What is your opinion of non-IT professionals recruiting IT related staff like business and less product owners. <laughs> it's, it, it is interesting where we actually, um, we engage people on the fact that their price point in the marketplace is cheap enough for us to accept, not their experience level. And, and it, I, I often see that where we actually have recruiters come in and they, they will uh, fill a project full of people because they were the people in the market, but their criteria 
didn't actually consider that the type of um, platform we're putting in uh, or the experience level of those people. They just sort of filled, filled the recruiters, um, I suppose, inbox. And so they presented those options. And when you get into a project where, and it's, it's a classic, especially if you've got uh, organisations that are going to say SAP that weren't SAP before. And if you've got a whole team that's actually implementing that and they have no understanding of the complexities of SAP, um, then, then what you find is that they don't understand what you need to do. And so that's where you get a bit of that half-baked type thing. So, you know, processes are ultra important when you're doing SAP, you know, understanding how you're doing those sort of things. You know, when, you, when you've got other, organ other uh, platforms that might be a bit more flexible, processes can, you know, be, be close. But with, with SAP, you've got to be very defined, very clear on what you're doing. And so people who don't have that experience... Uh, can cause a lot of problems because they just really don't understand how it operates at the end of the day or what's the user going to have to do at the end of the day to actually make this thing work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, another question here is from uh, Susanna Carion in, she's from Spain. So we have uh, at least two people I, I know of that are from Spain here on the live stream. So apparently we have a huge following in Spain from what I can tell. Um, but the Susanna's question is, uh, there are some ERP vendors that have such a quick approach that it's supposed to help the implementation phase, making it in a shorter timeline. All processes supported by the ERP are already mapped from the beginning. Do you think this type of approach can really help defining the operating model joined with the client or in conjunction with the client? Um, I, th I think the gap there is that the, the notion that they could actually have them predefined to start with, um, because as we talk about this, it's, it's that concept of best of breed. And, uh, and so what you find, this is a challenge with some of the cloud options where they have a very, very defined, clear, they don't want you to change, they don't want you to customize, they want everybody to be on the same uh, version, the same, same configuration. And if you've got a very simple business, that's probably okay to be able to do, but the more complex you get, the harder that is to be able to manage because, again, you will have different needs, different different uh, requirements, whether it be compliance needs, whether it be the way you operate, whether it be that secret source, that's going to guide that. And so where we have these out-of-the-can type uh, configurations, for some organisations that are very simple, yeah, that, that might work. But, but you know, they, there's not a lot of those around, you know, um, and, and I think that's the thing to recognise is that, for the limited few that they actually do satisfy, um, we shouldn't overshadow that and say that everyone's the same. And I think that's the problem that vendors have gotten into because for them, it's much cheaper to actually have a software that everybody uses exactly the same way. Because when I do upgrades, when I do changes, when I do anything, it's the simple. It's simple for me as a software. It's my cheapest option. Anybody who wants extra costs me more because I have to consider their needs when I'm actually rolling out upgrades and doing those sorts of things. And so it's more expensive for me as a vendor. So it's a bit of a selfish thing for the vendors. Um, and, and, you know, it's probably their operating model is to actually get to the point of being as, as simple and as cheap and get as many people on the same version, same platform, same configuration, because it makes sense, but not for the organization is going to use it. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. No, it's very true. And again, it gets back to that point of, you know, just understanding where the vendors are coming from and what their self-interest, you know, what self-interest might be driving the vendors, which is okay. That's their prerogative to sell you software and to do what they can to try to sell you software. But at the end of the day, you have to back up and look at your business and figure out what's what's best for us and figure that out first. And that's, it's hard to do. Like you said, it's hard to do 
because we're all human and we don't want to let people down or we don't want to seem like we don't know what we're doing or if we don't have confidence in that approach we're going to defer to well the vendor is the expert they're telling us that we should just start deploying technology and you know using agile or whatever um but you, you know i think it's a matter of educating uh, yourself too um and in fact uh, just to build on that uh, scott martin on crowdcast here made a comment of uh it's related to that whole concept of agile uh, he was kind of building on that thread and saying um he would ask, would you provide some details on what you mean by agile implementation? You know, if an executive is telling you that we should be using agile and then use that as an opportunity to educate the client. And I think that's really important because I think with all the stuff we're talking about here, I mean, whether we do it the, the way we're recommending or, you know, the way a lot of organizations will do it, which is to lead with the technology and then figure out the business process stuff later, no matter which approach you take, there's always going to be risks and trade-offs. So I think it's a matter of really recognizing that none of this is a silver bullet, even what you're saying, what I'm saying, none of this fixes everything. I mean, it, it gives you a, what we think is a better path and a, a path of least resistance, but it's not going to solve all the problems. There are going to be other risks along the way that need to be addressed. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question here um, around um, business process mining tools. Um, maybe we could spend a couple minutes on this. Um, and actually, I don't know if you saw this this article, Wayne, but there was a uh, there was an article, and I, I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. I thought I had it in front of me, and it, it crashed on me, or the the window crashed out on me. But it was a, it was a article about um, SAP an SAP implementation that um, I'm just going to see if I have it on my my phone here because it was a really good article. Um, it was it was an article uh, in the Register, and it was about the uh, pharmaceutical firm GSK. And they had implemented SAP ECC, so not S4HANA, but the legacy uh, SAP product. They'd implemented, I think, 10 years ago, and they thought they had a, a common operating model. They had defined sort of a standard business process or set of business processes when they first deployed the technology. But then they used this process mining tool. Um, I forgot which one, but they they used that process mining tool to go in and, and eventually discovered that they had actually 28,000 variations on one single process. It was, I think, the sales order process. So they took just one micro process that they thought was being standardized, and then they used the process mining tool to see how people were actually using the system and how the processes were actually flowing, and that there's 28,000 variations. And they found that most of those didn't need to be variations. They could have been using a standard process. So I guess, first of all, what is a process mining tool? And then maybe we can come back to that point about how do you, how do you avoid that problem of this proliferation of you know, thousands of different variations of the same process. Yeah, interesting uh, discussion there. And, and it's great you bring this up because it's something that I've been involved in just recently uh, and see the value of it. So a process mining tool, uh, what it does, it actually takes a snapshot of the digital fingerprint people have when they actually go in and use the system. So as, a, as an organization, everybody, when they actually do a transaction, when they interact, they actually leave a fingerprint. And the the process mining tool has an algorithm in the background that actually identifies where all those touch points were, and then it lines up with that standard process. So if you do a sales process, order to cash type process, you'll have it where you know the information comes in. There'll be probably about six or seven steps that actually guide that, which actually becomes what we would call a end-to-end -end process as such. Uh, but but uh, but the challenge has been when we do process mapping, and which I was alluding to before, is that we would ask people how do you do this? And they would give us some of those high level things of what we think we should do. When you overlay it with process mapping, you process mining, 
you actually find that there are many, many hundreds of thousands of variations that people actually do. You know, things happen before they should do. There's reasons why, you know, um, in a, in a uh, purchase to pay, it's interesting that you might find that where we have a purchase rec and a purchase order and, you know, a goods receipt and an invoice, you think, oh, they're pretty simple. But then all of a sudden you're starting to get an invoice before you've actually done a purchase rec. And you go, well, you know, we can cope with that. But then what does that mean? That means that I've, I'm buying something that no one really, it's not even on my forecast, my radar to understand I'm going to have to pay for that. So have I forecast enough money for that? And, and so these are all of the challenges that we actually have. We can't actually see these unless we use something like a process mining tool. And I suppose the, the, there's a couple of um, recent developments when it comes to process mining tools, probably over the last five years. Uh, there's a couple of products that uh, have really, and SAP has actually purchased a process mining tool that's been around for a, for a while. And they've purchased it because of that view of rolling out an ERP is complex. And they're finally getting that message that process is a big driver of that and understanding the gap between what good standardized process might be as against what we actually do as an organization. And that's what often derails many of these programs. Um, uh, there was in Queensland, we did a, um, we did a, uh, a podcast, I think a few months ago, sort of thing, Eric, and it talked about 16 different hospitals having a centralized system rolled out and it failed. And the reason it failed is because they had 16 hospitals doing 16 different ways that they never considered. They've actually since done a process mining exercise and realized that that was the derailer of, of it all is that those hospitals just continued doing what they were doing, but no one actually took the insight of saying, well, this standardized process is what we want you to do, but no one changed. And that that's so process mining is a really, really valuable tool. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in that case, you know, makes you wonder, was it really just 16 variations or were there within each of the 16 locations? Did they have hundreds or thousands of different variations? Uh, actually, in the hundreds, uh, in the hundreds of variations for each hospital. So, uh, so, you know, you multiply that and uh, and that's that's what happens. So, yeah. Yeah, and if you haven't heard that interview yet, I, I really enjoyed that interview. And I thought we covered a lot of good ground in that interview. Just uh, check my, uh, actually, it's on the, I think it's on the third stage YouTube channel. So if, if uh, you go out to YouTube, just search up third stage and subscribe to it. Um, just search Queensland once you're on the, on the channel, you'll find the interview with Wayne and I. And it's a fascinating, I think it's a fascinating case study, as are a lot of uh, challenge projects. And it oftentimes leads back to, uh, to business processes and process mining and all that stuff. Um, so I think the, the last question I'll ask here before we, we wrap up, I think I've hit most of the questions. I know we didn't get to everything that the audience had, but uh, first of all, thank you to the audience for such great questions. This is really interesting threads that we went down. Um, but I wanna make sure we cover the whole concept of change management uh, as it relates to future state operating model. Maybe at a, at a high level, and, I, and we could obviously spend a whole hour Q and A session just on change management, but maybe at a high level, just to give us a, a teaser or a, a flyover view, how does change management factor in or fit into this whole concept of operating model or vice versa? How does operating model determine, you know, our change management strategy? It's well, it's, it, it's interesting because we're working with an organization at the moment that's got this, this challenge. They've worked the same way for the last 20 years. And when you look at it, their, their industry has changed a lot. There's a whole lot of differences in the way they actually operate. There's, there's more compliance, there's, there's new disruptors in the market. And so all of a sudden, how we worked in the past is no longer how we can work in the future. And so change management becomes a huge part of it because if I, if I expect that people are going to be working the same way as they did in the past, but they don't have any guidance which the operating models de 
deciding for us or we're deciding on how we're going to operate, the change management piece is taking on that journey. So where you, where you uh, gave someone a piece of paper in the past to actually put information in, you're going to actually be doing it yourself on a mobility device. That's a change journey in itself. Understanding the different rules and different drivers that we actually have and we're going to be measured on is a change journey. And so, so that needs to be considered and, and how wide that, that chasm is or that gap is for organisations from where they are today and how they operate to what this new world is going to look like really takes, you need, you need to work with people, you need to get people to understand, you need to get buy-in of those people to go, that makes sense, that, that's the reason why I want to do that as against you must change because how many of us humans accept you must change? And, that's, and I think the change piece is often underestimated when we're talking about whole-scale digital transformation uh, because people need to understand why. And if we don't give them a why, it's they're just resistance. Just the walls go up, and so uh, so it's it's a it's a big a big area for organisations to, I think, get a handle on, um, which they often underestimate and think, oh, it's a cost. I can't see how I measure that value return and those sorts of things, and and uh, that's not a good way to go. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know change management is is typically one of those things that is on the critical path to completion. Of a, of a transformation, assuming there is a completion and not just sort of an ongoing improvement uh, method. But in general, if you have X amount of time to implement a solution, it's change management is one of the things that will oftentimes delay if you haven't addressed it. And so one of the good things about what you're suggesting with, with which is to bring that uh, future state operating model work up front, is that that allows you to get into the weeds sooner to determine what those impacts are going to be to the organization so that we can develop a change strategy and start executing on a change strategy earlier rather than waiting until we get to design and then build of the technology. By then you're, you're so far downstream that it, you're, you're playing catch up from a change management perspective. So yeah, and usually, usually by the time you get to that end, you're still only focusing on the technology. There's a lot more that an organization has to do apart from the using the technology. And what you find is when you're at the stage of deployment, you're teaching people how to use the new technology. Often you haven't got, they don't have understanding of why they're using it, what they're doing. So it's almost like you're teaching a monkey how to push a button. And, right. and that's not, and people then go, well, I really don't understand why I'm doing this. I feel more comfortable with my old way. I'll stick to that once this goes live because no one will be watching. So, and, and that's usually where the challenge comes after deployment to actually get people using the system is because all we've taught them how to do is use a technology that they don't really understand why they're doing it, why it's built that way, or, or, or why it makes sense to do it that way. Often, oftentimes when we haven't thought about it, it doesn't even make sense to do it that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then, a, you know, a good a closing comment here from uh, um, uh, Satnam uh, on Crowdcast, he makes a comment that most organizations think change management is just about training and communications when it is much more than that. And I, I couldn't agree more with that with that comment. And to address those areas outside of training and communications, you need to get a jump start on this stuff that we're talking about today, which is the you know the operating model and defining what that future state is going to be. Yeah, yeah, because that because that sets people with uh, okay, that's why we're doing this, and that then gets them involved. Whereas many times we don't tell anybody until we've gotten to the point. Oh, we've got this new system we're going to give you, and it's great. And uh, and that's not change management. And uh, putting posters on walls is not change management. So um, I agree with you there, Sadam. Right. And so I guess you know here's here's actually a really good closing question for this discussion here today. That I think it sort of 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it puts a, a bow on this whole discussion. And this is from uh, uh, Juiced Winnick from uh, the Netherlands. Uh, here on, I'm on, uh, I think this is LinkedIn. I'm, I have so many things open. I can't remember which platform I'm on here, but I think this is LinkedIn. Uh, he said, with all the knowledge in the world that it is not easy, that these sorts of transformations are not easy at all, why do companies still think that it is? <laughs> I don't know if you have an answer to that, but I mean, that's a good way to leave it. If you have well, some thoughts on that. You've never been involved then in a sales uh, cycle for a vendor because uh, their whole thing is to uh, uh, take away the concern and make it feel as if, no, this will be a walk in the park because we've got your back. And um, soon you realize that's not actually the case. And so that's why many times we get caught into that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, well, Wayne, thanks a lot for your time. This is a great discussion. The time flew. I can't believe it's already been over an hour, but this is really good uh, discussion. And I think there's a lot of different directions we could go building on this, but I think this is a good overview of, of operating models and how that all ties into digital transformation and how it ties into other work streams of a digital or business transformation. So thanks very much for being here today. Appreciate it. No, it's been great and some great questions and uh, I've enjoyed this topic. So, uh, so really good. Thanks for, thanks for letting me be part of it. Absolutely. You can definitely sense your energy and enthusiasm for this topic. So I appreciate you being here. All right. Great conversation. Uh, Wayne, thanks for being on the show. That was a, a really interesting set of responses and discussion points. And I really appreciate the people that joined the live stream, uh, which we do every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time in the United States or U.S. time, and uh, love to have you join anytime. You, you, if you want to be part of the show and ask questions of our guests, feel free to join those live streams on Fridays. And then typically uh, within the next two episodes, you'll, you'll hear that segment on transformation ground control. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about operating models and business process improvement and all that good stuff. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, your source for all things digital transformation. So Parisa, that was sort of a epic, uh, very long interview with Wayne. Um, I enjoy it, but what, what were your thoughts? What are some of your observations after hearing that segment? Epic is a good word for it, I'd say. Wayne is so, he's genius, I think. Um, just his his perspectives and the way that he explains it, it almost brings it down to layman's terms and it's, it's easy to understand, you know, so I can appreciate that on Wayne's part. So uh, one thing he said that stood out to me is, you know, it should be just common knowledge, right? But a lot of companies put technology at the center, 
right? Rather than letting it play a supporting role. And that's something that that Wayne was talking about a lot is that technology should be playing a supporting role in any organization, um, not not being the main focal point. And it's kind of like money. I mean, it amplifies who you are. It if you bring on a you know a new system and you don't have that foundation, you don't have that secure operating model. It's going to show when you go live. Um, in, in your processes and just how it's received, how it's functioning. Um, so it's interesting to hear how much of a foundational role the operating model plays. So just to sum it up, I mean, he mentioned it, it comes down to governance. Uh, it's your competitive driver. It helps you dial in on your performance metrics and figure out your, your processes and your workflows. Now, you know, and maybe cybersecurity based on what we were talking about earlier given the day and age, right? So, I mean, looking at how big of an, a role it plays, it sounds like if you don't have your operating model in place, set and secure and planned out before you go into an implementation, you could be setting yourself up for ERP failure. So, I mean, have you seen that in any of your, in, in any cases that you've worked on or have any examples of what exactly the impact is if you don't have a secure, and stable operating model before you go into a dig digital transformation? Yeah, I mean, maybe just to try to simplify it uh, to start uh, on that that thread as far as, you know, what happens when you don't have that uh, business process model or operating model in place. You know, it's a lot like building a house. I mean, if you think about if you were, if you were going to have a new house built, um, you know, the question would be, would you just start bringing in your, you know, your roofers and your, you know, drywall guys and your, um, electrical electricians and the plumbers and all that stuff without having a clear, clearly defined set of parameters for what you want the house to look like. And that's really the, the question that you have to ask. And a lot of times what happens is organizations fall victim or prey to this concept that are per, that's perpetuated by software vendors and system integrators that you don't need to worry about the operating model. Our software will do the opposite of what you said, Parisa, which is our software is going to define for you what your operating model is. And that's just absolutely not true. Um, part of the reason it's not true is because, first of all, you're operating down at a transactional level. When you're dealing with software, you're down, you're down in the weeds by definition. You're, you're defining how you're going to have different transactions flow and what buttons you push and what the screens look like and all that stuff. And if you do that absent of that overarching blueprint, if you will, or business process or operating model blueprint, you're just shooting in the dark. I mean, yeah, you might have a bunch of really good pieces put together here with your software vendor system integrator, but how it ties together with end-to-end -end processes like Wayne talked about, that's a whole different story. And so it ends up happening if you don't do that then. It's a lot like how you would predict, uh, you know, a house building would go if you didn't have a, a clear blueprint for all of your contractors and various people involved in the building of the house. You need to have that blueprint. And if you don't, what ends up happening in a, in a transformation is just a lot of things. You get misalignment. You, you don't, you're not on the same page with what, what it is you're trying to accomplish because you haven't defined as a team what you want to be when you grow up. So either you end up arguing or there's misalignment or tension with the team and or your system integrator will just take care of it for you and they'll define for you what you want to look like. And that is definitely not the right answer. So neither one of those are the right answer. So that's, that's one symptom. Another symptom is you can't really focus on change management because you don't have a clear operating model defined. So you change management team ends up waiting until the software is built before they can really start any meaningful change management. So that's another, you know, another, uh, I'd say a symptom of that problem. 
Um, and then, you know, project governance, it becomes very difficult to decide, do we want to customize the software? Do we want to configure it this way or that way? Decision-making becomes super difficult because you have no, you have no blueprint, you have no vision. And so your system integrator starts asking you questions of how you want the software to work and what your needs are. And you're probably without having that clear blueprint, you're probably going to revert back to what you've always done because that's what you know, and you haven't defined anything otherwise. And so what I'd say is if you're really aiming for process improvements and you're really trying to change your business, then I would say that operating model concept is really critical. Now, if you happen to be one of those few companies where, hey, our processes are great, we don't really need to improve them, we just need to upgrade our technology, then, okay, maybe it's not quite as important. You still want to do it, but um, it might not be quite as valuable, but I'd still suggest for any organization, even if you're doing a relatively simple, and I, I use the word relatively pretty strongly because no upgrade is simple, um, that you still want to, you still want to have that operating model to some degree. Right. Interesting. I mean, the, from those symptoms that you're sharing, it sounds like those are, those are pieces that will elongate a transformation project, which in the past we've talked about that costs you more money, the longer an implementation implementation takes, the more money you're forking out to your vendors, to everybody that's involved. So, I mean, and just as far as timelines, if you if you plan ahead and you spend a lot of time pouring into your operating model, you're going to probably save money because you're saving time. Um, it's, it's almost like a domino effect. If you don't get the first chain of the, uh, like the link of the chain right, then it's going to affect the whole project. It's interesting. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I'm glad you said that because I, I failed to mention that super important point in my response, which is, you know, that is another symptom is going over budget, taking longer than expected. And just to build even further, you probably recall the, uh, uh, there was a segment, I think there's a couple questions about Agile. We were talking about Agile a couple times throughout the conversation. And Agile, this whole concept of Agile runs counter to this operating model concept, you know, because Agile oftentimes, and, and I'm generalizing, and, and I know I'll have Agile purists out there that are going to crucify me for saying some of this stuff. But in general, what you often see is that uh, people will use Agile as an excuse to not do that upfront work. They just jump in and start building stuff. They try to get the minimum viable product. They try to put something in front of the users, get their response or get their feedback and then go tweak it. And they're doing it in the name of speed. And I think in many ways, Agile is an overreaction to the fact that transformations have been so cumbersome and difficult in the past. So Agile is sort of a perceived way to speed things up. But to your point, if you do agile or any other sort of fast implementation without taking that time up front to define your processes and your operating model, it's going to actually take you longer to get it right later on. You might get started faster and it might look like you might feel like, and it looks like you're moving faster on paper, but long-term that's typically going to take you longer because you're, you're operating without a plan. So I think, you know, you can use, if you have that operating model clearly defined up front, then you can start to use agile and how you deploy you know, the technological solutions and the roll out the process improvements that you've defined and all that good stuff. But I don't think you want to start out out of the gates with skipping or bypassing that more water, waterfall-ish approach to defining your, your operating model clearly up front. So long-winded way of saying, I totally agree with you. Time, cost, <laughs> resources are, are optimized when you have a clear operating model. Right. That makes total sense. And the other thing that Wayne was talking about or that both of you guys were talking about is that having a set operating model can act as your differentiator in the market and drive your competitive advantage. I mean, especially if you're a larger organization, 
you know, if you can perform more efficiently than your competitor, then chances are it's going to trickle down to your customer experience as well. So I guess before I dive into the whole concept of, of operational excellence, which I want to chat about briefly, I'm curious, you know, if a company dials in on their operating model, can they change it? Or is that like their core, um, kind of like their core values? Is that something that stays consistent over the years, even as the world changes, like almost like their mission statement or something, or can they change it as time goes on? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and operating models generally are sort of a living or they should be a living, breathing type of thing. Um, it's, it really reflects a snapshot or a moment in time where you are operationally or where you want to be operationally, you know, at that moment in time. Now, over time, you know, what ends up happening is your operating model, if that remains static, you know, the reality is your, your, your processes are going to change and evolve over time. The question is, are you going to, are you going to clearly define how those processes are going to change? Or are people just organically going to tweak things and start messing with that operating model and letting it go, you know, a million different directions. Um, and that's usually what happens is companies just sort of define the operating model and then they forget about it. Um, and then what ends up happening, if you look out like 10, 15, 20 years, what ends up happening is if you don't have that clear operating model, then you're probably letting processes drift whatever direction people want to take them. And when I say people, I mean all of your employees. And then the technology is going to drift too, because technology is constantly changing. And if you're, especially if you're using a cloud solution, it's going to constantly upgrade and update and that ends up drifting. And what ends up happening is 10, 15 years later, you have this, this divergence between where your processes actually are today and where the technology is and your operating model that you intended is probably somewhere in the middle and you're just completely misaligned. And then you freak out and say, I need a new ERP system or I need new technology because they're broken. And what you find is, well, actually it's not necessarily even broken. It's just that you let it you know, sort of um, drift drift apart from what you wanted. And so, you know, I think the key there is to have that process governance and the operating model governance in place in that mentality of continuous improvement to where you're consciously tweaking and making deliberate decisions around what, you're, what you want your processes to look like rather than just letting it evolve however it's going to evolve. So um, to answer your question, it it should be a living, breathing document, but what ends up happening is people sort of, even if they do, what Wayne is suggesting in, in the discussion there. And you clearly define that operating model. It's not like one and done. You do it once and then you do it the next time you roll out technology in 10 or 20 years. You want to constantly update that along the way. Yeah, that makes sense. I imagine a lot of operating models changed in 2020. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, you think about, think about restaurants and retailers and you know, just at a micro level or a local community level, think of all the businesses you interact with and how much they've had to change or your, your doctor, your dentist, all, they've, they've all had to change in some pretty significant way. And a lot of times that involves technology or they're trying to figure out how technology could help them enable that business model. Uh, but even things behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see or consumers don't see day to day, like, uh, you know, B2B providers that are, you know, selling industrial products to another manufacturer or whatever, even those businesses have changed because not only are they dealing with remote workforces in some cases or um, some of the challenges that um, every organization is facing, but then you have the supply chain disruptions that are being perpetuated or fueled by, by COVID in this post-COVID world. Um, you also have now this, this expectation in the market that you, we can do more things digitally or electronically. And so even B2B providers are trying to find ways to use e-commerce or uh, retail type of mentalities to provide better service to their customers. So 
I think everyone or most organizations in some way have been directly or indirectly impacted, you know, in 2020 and beyond. Absolutely. It just goes to show how important it is to be flexible um, as the world continues to change. I mean, talking about competitive advantage and using your operating model as a differentiator, um, it kind of it trickles into the conversation about operational excellence, which I know um, Dave Beldick just recently, he spoke on it in, uh, at Digital Stratosphere, and he just recently wrote, an, wrote a piece about it. So diving into that, I mean, operational excellence, to me, it's when your operations are working seamlessly, every, every department, every technology, all your processes are working synergistically. Um, I guess the concept goes hand in hand in laying the groundwork for, for your operating model. So I guess one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, this is about business process management and business process mapping, for example, it's looking at your current state, where are you now? Um, and that, that, that helps you develop your operating model, right? So if that's the case, say you're, you're about to go on a digital transformation. I know something that we talk about a lot is you need to think of the future state of your business um, when you're going into a transformation. Where do you want to be 5, 10, 20 years from now? Um, whereas this conversation is look at where you are today. What are your processes today? What is your governance today? Um, and understand where you are before you implement a new technology. So I guess can you help bridge the gap? Which is it? Is it should we be looking at the future state or should we be looking at where we are today? How do they relate to each other? Yeah, that's a that's a great observation and nuance that you're pointing out here is that I'd say what it's not. You don't necessarily want to just define an operating model that solidifies or documents or codifies what you're doing today. Generally, you're looking to the future in some capacity. Now, the question is, are we looking 10 years out? Are we looking at what we think we want to be today or in the next three to five years? That that's a that's a tough question to answer. But in general, I'd say, you know, most organizations we work with sort of know that the current state isn't working. That's why they've hired us. And that's why they typically want to go through some sort of transformation. So they know that much. They know the current state's not working. We know we're not just going to create an operating model to replicate today. But the question is, you know, are we looking 10 years out or are we looking three years out or one year out or whatever the case may be? Um, I would say that the further out you look, the more deliberate you have to be about how you're going to get there. So we could define an operating model for five to 10 years out or some, what we think is going to work five to 10 years out, even though chances are fairly high, that's going to need to be modified as things change over time. But let's just say you, you define that. Then we need to back into, okay, what, how are we going to get there? Because we're not just going to put in new technology and overnight we're, you know, kind of, we've gotten there. It's obviously a longer journey. So it's a matter of using that desired future state as a way to define what your overall strategy and roadmap is. And for a lot of organizations, especially larger multinational organizations, these transformations, these journeys can take several years. We have, we have one client, for example, that's um, the largest steel producer in North America. And they're, I think, on year four or four and a half of a seven-year transformation. And a lot of organizations just are baffled by that. They can't imagine a seven-year project. And, you know, most organizations, to be fair, shouldn't take seven years, but this is a massive company with a lot of different locations and, and they're pretty complex business. So, you know, in, in that state, you know, you kind of want to know that we're going to define our operating model and then we have to back into where we are today and then figure out the roadmap to get there. 
And then by the way, along the way, in years one, two, three, four, five, or how long it takes, things are going to change and your operating model is probably going to need to be modified as well. So it, it's definitely, there's a lot of art to that. You know, there's science to the operating model part of it, but the art of figuring out how do we get there and um, what are the different steps and what's that strategy, there's that, therein lies the art. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, your culture, your, your risk tolerance and um, your ability to change. There's a lot of things that factor into that that we, we assess to help clients figure that out. Interesting. And I mean, talking about timelines, you mentioned in your conversation with Wayne, I think it was a client that you had that was able to execute their, their transformation in 12 months. So in one year, which sounds like that's kind of quick. And when you, when um, they were asked, you know, how did you do it? They said they spent over half the time in the planning phase. So 60% of the whole project was planning, laying down the groundwork for this operating model, for their processes, et cetera. So I guess, what is the average transformation time? I mean, it obviously depends on the size of the company and, and number of employees and blah, blah, blah. But what would you say at a high level for this this particular company that you're talking about, for example, you know, what's the average timeline? Yeah, so that's a, another, maybe I'll throw in a caveat here before I answer that. There's There's sort of what is the actual average and then what should the average be? And those aren't necessarily the same thing. Uh, when you look at, you know, when you look at research we've done over the years, um, you know, for over 10 years now, we've been doing annual surveys and studies of actual implementation results for organizations throughout the world. Not just, not just our clients. We're actually intentionally looking outside of our client base to get a better feel for, you know, what's the market doing in general. And when we've studied that metric, as far as how long a project takes, the average has hovered between 16 and 18 months. But that's an average for companies of all sizes, all different industries, geographies, et cetera. So you, you have to normalize it for who you are. You, you know, for example, we have some clients that have implemented in, you know, three to six months. We have other clients that, have, like I mentioned, that have taken six to seven years. So there's a huge variation there. But the average, uh, the unweighted average in the market tends to fall between 16 and 18 months. Interesting. Yeah, that. I mean, that makes sense. There's a lot that goes into it from the planning side to making sure your team receives the new change correctly. Um, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. And I know that, um, you know, the conversation of how long it takes to implement an ERP system or any system, it, it like you said, it ranges. And um, I'm excited to kind of run through the conversation you had with a handful of people on LinkedIn about you know, is it possible to do a transformation in six weeks? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm highly skeptical of, of that concept. Um, there's, there's software vendors out there, especially when you're, you're looking at the smaller organization. So, you know, a company that is on QuickBooks now or, you know, some basic accounting software and they're, they're sort of going to their first ERP system or, you know, just something more robust than what they have. Those organizations... Uh, can certainly implement faster than, say, the big steel companies, that examples that I mentioned. But six weeks is pretty aggressive when you think about all the things that need to happen, you know, as far as process changes and just getting your people to change. Even if you could, even if you could have the system fully designed and the processes perfectly designed and ready to go on day one, it's probably going to take you more than six weeks just to get your people to figure out, you know, how to use it and get them on board with it and, you know, fine tune it and just get it operational. Uh, but then obviously you add in the fact that you have to define your processes, you have to design and build the software, test it, all that stuff. It usually 
takes a lot longer. And there's companies out there like Oracle NetSuite, I think, is guilty of this. And a lot of other vendors are, that, especially the ones that target the small companies. They'll Oracle, for example, will come out and say, hey, we've got sweet success. It's a sort of a methodology and a framework they use to fast track an implementation. And we see it a lot with our smaller clients where they say, hey, within 90 days, you'll be up and running with our entire suite of products. And the problem is that technically they're right. You could flip a switch and you could probably have it up faster than 90 days. You could probably spend a weekend or maybe just a few days, you know, get it, getting it up and running. The problem is there's just so many decisions you have to make about how you want to configure it, what you want your process flow to look like. Um, how are you going to move the data over? How are you going to, you know, test it, make sure it works with your business? How are you going to get your people adapted? You add up all that stuff and suddenly you're looking at a lot more than six weeks or 90 days or whatever. Uh, I don't want to say it can't be done, but it's highly unusual to have a, you know, an implementation that takes less than 90 days. And for the ones that do, oftentimes it's sort of like a good news, bad news situation, like good news, congratulations, you implemented in less than 90 days. But the bad news is now your operations are a mess and you can't ship product and you've got consequences to deal with on the on the other side of go live. So you have to straddle that too. You have to figure out, you know, how much is this really going to take us and how much is it really going to cost us? Not just in the initial six weeks, 90 days or whatever, 18 months, six years, whatever the duration is. You also have to look at what are we doing to our operations and what's that ROI after the fact. And sometimes you find that, you know, you'll end up with a, a negative ROI simply based on the fact that you lost a bunch of customer orders or customers are irritated and ticked off at you because you can't ship product. You know, how much does that cost? You have to look at that as well. Yeah. Opportunity costs for sure. That's interesting. Um, do you want me to dive into your LinkedIn posts right now? Should we cut to a quick break? Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's go to a break and then uh, we'll be right back in, in this last segment. Uh, you'll, you can dig into the, the post and we'll, we'll take some more, uh, audience or social media type engagement. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Okay, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Parisa Noble, and we were just talking about operating models, which we've been talking about for a while now, and this, this whole segment or this whole episode is largely devoted to operating models, business process improvement, and all that good stuff. And before the break, uh, you were starting to dive into some social media engagement and conversations that were happening related to this topic um, of operating models, but also we were starting to get into implementation durations as well, how long does it take? Should it take? All that good stuff. So what, what are you seeing there on social media? That's right. Well, I mean, we touched on the concept of, is it possible to do this in six weeks? And you posed that question to um, people on LinkedIn as well. And it was interesting to see uh, the responses. So just to position the question that you asked, 
here's the scenario. You have a software vendor who we'll call ABC. <laughs> they tell the prospect that they can implement their solution in six weeks for $150,000 USD. Can it be done? Is it possible? What's your opinion? And we had a handful of different responses. So I wanted to run through a few that stood out to me. Um, one was from Tanya Franklin and she's saying, it's possible. Um, I think she was one of the only ones that went against the grain and said it might be possible. So good for you, Tanya. I think that, you know, her position is it depends on the type of system. You can't do a full on ERP implementation. It must be a project with a smaller scope. That was her, um, you know, kind of end line with it. But it, her thought is if you have strong resources, um, from, you know, your partners, your vendor, your executive leadership, if you have a carefully developed project um, plan uh, and, you know, an operating model like we were just talking about, um, it can be done. So that that's one perspective of it. Another is, you know, it depends on the industry and the product because certain products will need more customization. Um, and let's see. It can be deployed with standard packs within two to three weeks, depending on, you know, what product. That's um, Ali Arsalan said that. And then we had Ashvak say, not possible if you're going for ideal results. Um, he just started with Oracle Financials Cloud, and it's an ocean. I love that metaphor. It, I mean, I imagine it's an ocean. There's so much to do there just on the system side. And then, like you were saying, Eric, you you add in kind of the data migration, the organizational change management component. There's so much that goes into it. So it we had some mixed reviews, and it's interesting to see, you know, you either choose do you want it to be done right or do you want it to be done quickly is what it seems like. <laughs> yeah, and most executives, I think, would probably say both. <laughs> we want it yeah. done right, and we want it done quickly. But you That's do great. have to have to decide. It's sort of like the um, in project management. One of the schools of thought in project management is that you have uh, speed, cost, and quality, and you can only have two of those three. You can't have all three of those. You can't be. You can't go fast, high quality, and low cost. You can only have two of the three. So it's sort of same thing here. You have to prioritize and figure out what's more important. If you're a high growth company that, um, you know, is, is moving quickly, then maybe speed is more important. So once you prioritize and you figure out what those uh, priorities are and what your, your most important factors are, then you can, you have a more realistic view of what, what that's going to look like. Interesting. Well, I thought we could finish this episode off with a fun game that kind of ties into this. So I'm going to, you know, describe a company type. And I want to name off different, like best of breed systems, um, like a CRM, SCM, et cetera. And then you tell us what is the timeline or average timeline that people should be shooting for. Okay. So for this, for this game, let's think of a company that is in high growth. They're in high growth phase. They're growing super fast. It's a fulfillment company. Um, that is shipping products to customers worldwide. Um, so they have a warehouse. They um, also help manufacture products. So they have supply chain um, situation. They, you know, sell to B2B businesses. So they need help with sales too. So it's kind of a full scope company that could really utilize any of these systems. So are you ready, Eric? <laughs> I, I'm ready. Is, I didn't know this was a game, but uh, it, feel, it feels like a lot of pressure. Is, is there money at stake? Do I, could I win or lose money based on my responses here? <laughs> 
I think you're good. We'll keep the money out of it. Keep it okay. safe. Maybe next time. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if this company wanted to implement a CRM, how long on average would it and should it take? Okay. So before, and those that know me know that I overthink things and I'm very analytical. So before I answer, I have to give a disclaimer that do not quote me on this. And if you're <laughs> listening and you fit that exact profile that Parisa just described and you're ready to write down my answer and that's going to be the duration you're, you're banking your career on, do not do that. That's a terrible idea, but I'll give you, I'll give you an answer based on limited information. So assuming they've selected a CRM system and let's just say they, they pick Salesforce or whatever it is, and they already know what the CRM is. And uh, do we know how many employees they have? Did you say that or? Uh... Let's say they have a hundred employees. Okay. So maybe they have, tw let's just say they have like 20 salespeople, 15, 20 salespeople-ish. Does that sound right to you? Sure. That sounds then, <laughs> then I'd say this probably is a case where you could deploy in less than 90 days. If you knew the software, if you had, uh, especially if you, if you already have a clear vision of what you want your sales processes and your customer service processes to look like, I would say, absolutely. You can, you could do that in 90 days. Um, if you don't have your processes defined and if you don't, if, and if you're very disparate right now, and this is going to be a massive change for you, as an organization, uh, I'd say it's probably going to take you more than 90 days. Um, and the other assumption I'm drawing here, maybe just assuming, is that there are, um, as a high growth company, you typically have limited resources internally. So your people are probably going to get distracted with day-to-day -day stuff while you're trying to roll out this new CRM system. So that's going to slow you down. Um, again, I'm not talking about just technically, can you turn on the system in X amount of time? I'm talking about how long you're actually using it. So I'd say all those things probably push you to... I'd say five to six months, you know, on, on average, but the exception being, if you had those other caveats in place, like you had a clear vision of what you want, and this isn't a huge change for your organization, you could probably do it in less than three months. Interesting. See, process planning, it just makes all the difference. It sounds like, okay. Yep. How about a supply chain management system? Supply chain management. So that that's more complicated because you're touching more processes and you're inevitably inherently having to touch things outside of supply chain. So now you're touching your customer orders, your sales team, your financials, uh, everything sort of ties back to that supply chain management. So I'm going to assume that you're implementing, you're talking about implementing a supply chain management system that also needs to integrate to your financials, maybe to your CRM, your uh, inventory management, whatever the case may be. Um, I'd say in this case, um, I would say Probably if you weren't doing the CRM project at the same time, so let's assume that this is a standalone, we're just doing supply chain management right now. Um, I would say at least six to nine months. Interesting. Yeah, that probably, probably, probably more, but you know, you run it right. You do, you know, you have a solid strategy, you have the technology picked, you have the plan up front to do the operating model and to get a solid plan and governance in place. I'd say you could probably do it in six to nine months for that size of organization. If you're a large organization with multinational and um, multiple warehouses, multiple locations, that number could go up to you know a couple of years if it's a larger, larger organization or a larger supply chain. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, supply chain is way more complex than a sales process, I would imagine. So that yeah. that's what about a warehouse management software? So warehouse management, it's a little bit more isolated, I guess, in some ways. Um, you're dealing with inventory management, which spans, you know, supply chain and other parts of the business as well. But it's largely 
confined to, you know, pick packing shipping within a, within a warehouse. So you're sort of, you know, isolating the change, isolating the impact, um, relatively speaking, obviously if you mess up your inventory or warehouse can't ship, obviously that affects a lot of people and can have a lot of negative implications, but in general, it's a little bit more isolated. So I'd say probably I'd say longer than it would take to implement CRM, but not as long as it would take to implement supply chain management. So I'd put it at somewhere around, let's say five to six months. Okay. Got it. Okay. Let's look at the HR side of things. How about a human capital management system? Yeah, those are those actually I think are the hardest to predict because on one hand you think it's just HCM, it's just HR, you know, we only have say five in this example maybe they have five HR people or whatever the number might be with 100 employees, I can imagine they have more than five or 10 HR people, probably less. So you think okay, that's not that many people, so it's not going to be that hard to change. Well, you're actually impacting all of your employees. That's the one technology where everyone's going to be impacted because now you're talking about uh, performance management, performance reviews, um, you know, hiring and firing, recruiting, all that stuff. Um, the whole hire to retire process um, is is affected by human capital management and HR systems. So you're affecting everyone, which which amplifies or bumps up the the duration and the effort it takes. Um, I'd say it's probably even for this size of an organization. It's if you want to do it right and you don't want to have a ton of disruption with your HR processes which you could do. I mean, if you are going to pick an area where you're okay with the disruption, I suppose HR might be an okay one to pick. I, I wouldn't recommend it, but if you had to pick one, just because, you know, you, most organizations can deal with someone not being able to fill out their, their benefits paperwork in the way they want them to, but they, they can deal with that a lot easier than they can deal with not being able to ship product or not being able to close the books or run a report of what their P&L is or whatever. So I'd say, you know, you can probably take a little more risk with HR systems. And I apologize to HR professionals out there who totally disagree with me. And I'm sure some of you do, but you know, that realistically speaking, I, I, that's what we found. So I'd say you might be able to do it in more like the CRM range, like a three to six month window. Um, I, I'd suggest more like six months if you want to minimize disruption, but if you wanted to take a, take a risk and say, Hey, we'll, we'll take our chances just in, in the name of getting something up and running faster. Um, you could probably do it closer to three. Okay. Interesting. All right. What if they wanted to do a full on digital facelift and get an ERP system to just run everything for them from their supply chain all the way to accounting, invoicing, et cetera? So I'd put them pretty close to that average across the board that we talked about before that, that 16 to 18 months, uh, maybe a little bit lower, assuming they do things right. And that's the other thing you have to be careful with benchmarks is even though I have this benchmark that I share, which is 16 to 18 months is the average. That's the average of what actually happens, not what should happen or what could happen if you do things right. So if you really look at, you know, leveraging implementation, best practices and leading with the business, not the technology, investing in change management, all the stuff that we talk about in this podcast and YouTube videos and all the stuff we put out there and all the advice we typically give to our, our clients. If you do all those things, you could probably do it in closer to maybe closer to a year. Uh, but you have to do those things right. If you don't do those things right, it's probably going to take more like 16 to 18 months, maybe maybe longer if you really screw things up. So <laughs> a lot of it depends on how you plan and how you, how you execute. Right. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it just goes back to summarize, <clears throat> excuse me, everything we talked about is laying the foundation brick by brick, planning it out, mapping it out. And that's what's going to help, you know, help you transform your business in way less time than you, than you would if you didn't. 
So makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the key to your questions there, you know, the key way to think about for people listening of what about my business? My business is X number of employees, X number of locations and countries and all that stuff. You know, hopefully that way of thinking, me trying to think out loud will demonstrates how you should think about how you're going to define your timeline. And keep in mind too, you're going to get a proposal from your software vendor or vendors that are probably overly optimistic and incomplete. So you need to translate what they give you into reality and you know, I've kind of verbalized how you translate some of that into reality based on how you run the project and some of the different assumptions that they go into these sorts of transformations. Right. Fascinating stuff. I got to say. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for that speed round. I'm glad I didn't lose money on that. Um, cause I hate, I hate gambling. So, uh, unless I win, then of course I love it, but uh, generally I don't gamble. So that, that was fun. So thanks for another good episode, Parisa. Good to have you back. And uh, we'll look forward to, um, our next episode next week. Sounds great. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Be sure to subscribe, share this video, or share this recording, or the audio format with friends and colleagues. We'd love to get the word out. And uh, certainly give us drop us a review, too. Give us a thumbs up and or a review on the podcast platform that you're listening or watching this on. And uh, in the meantime, we will see you all next week. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.